0: you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, good morning. And grace to you and peace from God our Father. A little bit, getting some feedback. There we go. Good to see everyone this morning, and uh, good to have you here. Um, I'm thankful for both our visitors and our members. And hopefully this morning, I was thinking about the song that we were just singing, about singing on joyful pilgrims. And I think when we come together as Christians and, and we assemble together, we are reminded of the transitory nature of this present life and how we are pilgrims and how we are looking forward to something greater. And to remind ourselves and to refresh our spirits with that truth because it's so easy during the week to get bogged down with this present order and this present life. And we need to remind ourselves of, of those promises, that we're looking for something greater, and we have faith in that. And we are more than conquerors through Him who has loved us. And we trust in that. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 we're introduced to a man by the name of Lamech. And Lamech's an interesting character. He's the first one that we know of that takes two wives. But there's something else interesting about Lamech because he comes home one day and he's got a story to tell his two wives. And we read in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So Lamech comes home one day and he's bragging to his wives about how he killed a man who hurt him. This kind of vigilante justice in his mind. And he's proud of the fact. I got him back. In fact, I got him more than he got me. And in this situation... The punishment didn't fit the crime because this young man that he apparently killed had simply wounded him. He hadn't killed him, obviously, because he's home. In fact he wrote a song about it. You probably notice within your text that it's set off as poetry because it seems as if he wrote a song about how he killed this man. And so he got even, he got his way. The the the, the punishment didn't fit the crime. It wasn't equal. The, The the Balances of justice were not equal. And so because of this common practice, because of man's tendency to kind of even do more to someone that hurts us than is necessary, into that environment, the Mosaic law introduced teaching, introduced law to curb vengeance, to curb and to dampen retaliation. And that law is found in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 through 21. I had it on PowerPoint so you wouldn't have to turn to the book of Leviticus. But uh, we're having some issues with that this morning. But if you can't find it, uh, you can listen. Leviticus 24, 17 through 21. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, he has, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. This law, which was referred to in Latin as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, is a law that wasn't unique to the Mosaic Code. In fact, it, it was a law that was seen within other law codes. For example, in Hammurabi's Law Code, which even predates the Mosaic Code, there was the lex talionis, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And when we initially read that, we think, man, this is about you know getting even and getting back. But really, what it initially was intended for was to curb vengeance, was to say, no, you can't take, if someone takes your eye, you can't take an eye and an ear. You can only take an eye. It, it, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was meant to curb vigilante justice. It was meant to dampen some of our tendencies to seek out vengeance on our own, but it was meant to be used judicially. It was meant to be used by the courts. It was meant to be used in a system of justice, but what happened was, was that many took this law and they made it personal. And what was supposed to be kind of reserved for the courts was then an excuse to ensure that if someone hurt you, you had a right to hurt them back. If somebody did you wrong, you had a right to do them wrong, as much wrong as they did to you. And if they cried about it, if they whined about it, you could just say, listen, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Of course, we haven't really changed much, have we? From Hammurabi and Moses. We have that same sense of needing to get even. In fact, that's how we describe it, right? we got to get even. We feel like we have been wronged, The the, uh, balances of justice are not correct, and we have to make it right. We have to get even. So, whenever the waiter is rude to us at the restaurant, we make sure she knows about it by not giving her a tip or by complaining to her manager. Why do we do that? We want to get even. We want to make sure that since we were treated wrongfully that she is treated in some way wrongfully. Now, we might not think of it that way. We might justify it on other ways, but a lot of times we're we're frustrated. Somebody posts a snarky comment to us on social media, and what do we start doing? We can't wait to get back at them. We can't wait to snap back and to to show them that, that they were wrong about us. In fact, they're the ones that need to be put in their place. If somebody embarrasses us, Our immediate reaction is anger. You ever had someone embarrass you when you were a kid? What's your immediate response when someone embarrasses you? To get angry and to lash back. To try and find a way to hurt them, to try and find a way to embarrass them. It's natural. Some might even call it human instinct. It almost seems reflexive. When someone has hurt us physically, when someone has hurt us emotionally, when someone has hurt us relationally, to hurt them back. But at the same time, I think that when we think about that, and when we reflect on our actions in that way, we realize that we lose a part of ourselves whenever we respond in that way. And there's just this continual cycle of bitterness, of getting even, and of resentment that makes up some of our relationships. And with that, the Christian is challenged because at the center of our belief is a Savior with a cross, a Savior who was cruelly humiliated and unjustly killed despite the fact that he had the ability to stop it. And that, if the cross doesn't challenge you of that reality of Jesus being able to stop it but not stopping it and enduring that. if that doesn't challenge you then maybe you don't understand the story because it should challenge us when we read that and equally challenging, you have that same Savior coming in Matthew chapter five and and it seems as if he is expecting a similar lifestyle from us. Look in Matthew chapter five. Start in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, there's the lex talionis. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, how do you live that out practically? Jesus says, you've, you've operated this way. This is how you've operated. This is how it's been done. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you, this is the retaliation. This is how I'm expecting you to engage righteously. With retaliation as a Christian. Now let me say something. Prior to this, you might have been able to kind of side skirt some of Jesus's teachings. You might have thought, well, you know, Jesus talked about anger, but I, I don't really, ha- I don't really struggle with that. I don't, I don't have much of an anger issue. Or, or maybe you know, Jesus talked about lust, but. I know other people struggle with that, but I don't, I don't really struggle with that as much. Or, or maybe when he talked about divorce, you're like, that doesn't really affect me. Kind of side-skirted, kind of look around it. But then we get to this teaching, and it's really, really hard to avoid this one. Because at some point, all of us have been hurt by somebody else. At some point, if we're honest, we all have had a moment where we want to get back where we want to get even, where we want to make things right, where we feel as if we have been disrespected and people haven't treated us the way that we deserve to be treated and we want to lash out. Again, it's almost human nature, it seems. And so when we read these texts, I think that all of us can sit here and I don't think that that there's anybody looking over across the pew and saying they need to hear this lesson. (laughs) It's more of looking in the mirror than anything else. And so what exactly is Jesus teaching here? When he talks about, this is probably one of the more well-known teachings of Jesus, right? Turn the other cheek. It's become a colloquialism within our own culture. When, when people do, do something wrong to you, somebody says, we just need to turn the other cheek. And some people might not even know that that originated with Jesus. And so, so we, we know this teaching well, but what is it teaching? And what is Jesus expecting of us as his people? So let's think about that for a moment. And the first point that we want to consider is that there is an unrighteous action that he's discussing. An unrighteous action. Jesus begins this teaching the same way that he has taught other things. Where he says, you've heard it said this way, but I'm telling you it's this way. And he's saying, this is how you've operated in the past. This is how you have understood it to be. But I'm teaching you a different way. And he is putting his teaching in direct contrast with the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. He's putting it in direct contrast. And that contrast is bold. I'm telling you, he says, don't resist the one who is evil. Now what does he mean by that? Because that's hard. Don't resist an evil person. I think when looking at this verse, it's important for us to remember two things. It's important to remember the context. And it's important for us to remember the qualification that Jesus makes. The context that Jesus is speaking of here is he's talking about personal interactions. He's talking about if someone slaps you, if someone sues you, if, if someone does this to you, if they beg of you. So he's talking about personal interactions. Individual actions. He's not discussing or getting into the judicial aspect of this. Because as we'll see later, there were still things that were expected of the government. Paul will talk about in Romans 13 how the government still had the right to incorporate capital punishment and things of that nature. So he's not talking about the judicial side of it. He's talking about personal interactions in which we are wronged. In which something has been done against us. He's not even really talking about... Personal defense. If someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night, what do you have the right to do? I'm not going to get into that, but that's not the context of his discussion here. We'll have another discussion later on about the Christian self-defense and what's expected in light of this. But he is talking about personal. And then what what, he, what helps us to understand what he means, what he's really talking about, is the qualifications that he makes. Because these scenarios help us to understand that Jesus gives. They help us to understand Exactly what he is talking about in this moment. And he talks about three different scenarios. He talks about what do you do as a Christian when you're insulted, when you're accused, and when you're coerced. What do you do then as a Christian? The first situation he talks about is what do you do when you're insulted? He says if someone slaps you on the cheek, I don't know if you've ever been slapped before, but it's not an enjoyable thing. If you have children, you probably have been slapped before. Because there's an age under two where all of a sudden they just, in the middle of a sentence, will just slap you across the face for no reason. That happens to me quite often. And it's startling. You know, it startles you, it stings. Now, what's interesting here, though, is Jesus isn't just talking about just a regular old slap in the face. Did you notice, if if you go back, look again at verse uh, 39. Do not resist the one who's evil if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, if you're facing someone and they slap you on the right cheek, essentially, they're slapping you with their right hand. Most people generally were Right-handed. And so as they're facing you, they're they're looking at you, they slap you. They're backhanded slapping you. They're slapping you with the back of your hand. And this was a common practice in Jesus' day, and it's still a common practice in most cultures. And it's not so much as to hurt you as it is to insult you. It's an attack upon your character. It's meant to humiliate you in front of other people. It's meant to assault your dignity. In fact, a lot of ancient Near Eastern law codes, it was more offensive. So in a lot of ancient law codes, you'd have to pay a fine similar to our own. You'd have to pay a fine if you assaulted someone. If you punch somebody in the nose, It was cheaper than if you slapped someone with the back of your hand. And and the reason was, was because it was viewed as an insult. It was viewed as a sign of disrespect. And so Jesus is talking about a situation when a Christian has been highly, highly insulted by someone. What do you do then? The second situation that he talks about is when a Christian is accused of something. He says, you're sued for your tunic, you give him your cloak as well. Now, the tunic was the inner garment that was worn during this time. The cloak was the outer garment. Now, during Jesus' day, and even in the Mosaic Law, you could not keep, for example, you could not keep a poor man's cloak from him overnight. Because it essentially exposed him to the elements. And so what Jesus is saying is that if someone sues your tunic, give to them your cloak as well. And the idea is that it's unjustly accused. They have no right to it. They're unjustly accusing you of something. And he says, give them your cloak as well. So essentially, if they have your tunic and they have your cloak, what do you have? Not much. You're standing naked in front of everyone. And so you've been, again, humiliated, insulted. So you've been insulted, you've been humiliated. And then the third situation he talks about is what happens if as a follower of Christ you're coerced? Now, during this time, Roman soldiers had the legal right to force anyone who was in their occupied territories to haul their equipment for up to a mile. They couldn't exceed a mile, but they could be walking through the street, and if they're tired of carrying their gear in their backpack, they could say, Hey, Jew, come here, take this, let's go. You could be in the middle of your day. You could be playing with your kids, you could be working, and you couldn't deny that. You had to go with them, otherwise there would be serious consequences. The Jews hated this because they viewed it as kind of a dig, a kind, of a, kind of a putting it to you by the Romans to remind the people as to they were under Roman rule, they were at their beck and call. And so it was a form of coercion for the modern day person. Someone who was in a position of authority... Someone who was in a position of power and who was abusing their power. What do you do then in that moment? How do you respond as a Christian? When your pride is insulted. When you're unjustly accused. And when someone who has authority over you takes advantage of their position. The natural response is to slap back counter sue and give them an earful. That's the natural response. To ensure that they get what's coming to them regardless of the consequences. These are the type of situations, these are the type of c- scenarios, you know, being accused, being insulted, being coerced at times. These are the types of things that make the world go round. So how should we respond? So there's an unrighteous action. What is number two? What is the righteous response to an unrighteous action? What's the righteous response to an unrighteous action? Now, I think we should be careful about taking all of these scenarios too rigidly. Because Jesus is trying to get to a greater point. He's using kind of a very, very, Shocking example to get to a greater principle similar to when he said if you want to overcome lust You've got to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye He's using exaggeration for effect and Jesus isn't going to qualify his teaching because if he qualifies it Then it takes away the bite of it. It takes away the pointedness of it If you're having to get up and teach something and you go now, I don't mean in this situation I don't mean in this situation. I mean in this situation It takes it away and it doesn't mean that if you, had, you were in those situations, you wouldn't have to respond in this way. But what it is saying is that Jesus is trying to get across a greater understanding, a greater principle that he wants us to see. He uses these images in a shocking way so that we can get to the heart of what he's saying. So how does Jesus say we should respond to these situations? Number one, he says, you should respond with vulnerability. With Vulnerability. If someone slaps you, believe me, the last thing that you want to do is turn your cheek and let them slap the other one. It is so (laughs) unnatural because it hurts and it's insulting. And that's the last thing that they expect you to do because this would essentially be exposing yourself to further insults. You're showing your vulnerability and your humility. And this action that Jesus is talking about here is an intentional and blatant refusal. It is an intentional and blatant refusal to contribute to the cycle of viciousness, hate, and bitterness that so often absorbs our interactions. It takes will to do this. It takes will to turn the head, to turn the other cheek. It has to be intentional. And what it speaks of is a measured self-control. Especially if you're more respected, if you're in a position of authority over this person. It takes a measured self-control to say, I'm going to make myself vulnerable in this moment. I'm not going to attack. I'm not going to hurt you back. I'm not going to insult you back. I'm just going to kind of open myself up in this moment and intentionally refuse to contribute to this tit-for-tat, back-and-forth, vengeful bitterness that consumes our interactions and our relationships. You make yourself vulnerable, he says. The second response that Jesus gives is we respond not only with vulnerability, but with generosity. Generosity. Again, if you took off your tunic and your cloak, you would be standing naked in front of everyone, possibly the entire street. And this is a startling image. Someone unjustly sues you for something, and you respond generously. You offer to them more than they have asked for. And in line with this, Jesus also speaks of giving to someone who's begging from you. What's he talking about? He's saying you're giving to someone who really has no right to your income. You're giving to someone you know, your right, someone who has no right to you. They're, they're making a demand or they're asking something of you, and they can't by law say you have to give this to me when he's talking about the begging. And of course... None of us take this strictly literally, do we? That every time someone asks of you, you give to them every single opportunity, every single moment. If that was the case, many of us would avoid downtown Austin. We don't take that strictly literal in that instance, but we know that he is speaking of an instance that is demanded of us, a type of lifestyle, a type of heart, a type of generosity. He's speaking of a generosity that extends even to those who treat us unfairly. A generosity to the people who make unfair demands of us. To find a way that we still care for them, even though they obviously don't care very much for us. And so you respond, he says, with vulnerability. You respond with generosity. And then thirdly, this is the hardest one, you respond with enthusiasm. I I want you to imagine a typical Roman soldier... Coming up to the typical Jew of his day and saying, hey, carry my stuff. Now, how do you think, in your mind, how do you imagine that scenario going? I imagine the Jewish man going, you know, stomping his feet over, grabbing the pack, kind of looking at him sideways, get to the end of a mile, throw the pack down, doesn't say a word, turn back around and goes, home. you know, stinking Romans. That's in my mind how it goes. What would have happened from the Roman soldier's perspective, who's who's probably used to that type of, you know, complaining, what would happen if the soldier gets to the end of this mile with this person, and and they turn around to the soldier and say, hey, do you want to go another? You want to go one more? I I can go one more if you want, Do you need me. What would happen in that moment? First off, the Romans got to be thinking, "What is, what is with this person?" Right? It would stand out. It would be different. This type of enthusiasm. How do we think that people would respond? Bosses, those who are in authority over us, who maybe compel us to do certain things. Maybe they even have a malicious intent behind making us work and do certain things. Maybe they, they have a, 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 a an intent to, to harm us or to kind of stick it to us because they have authority or power over us. How would they respond? What could they say if after getting done with that task, you turn to them and say, Hey, is there anything else I can do for you? Is there any Is there anything else I can help you with? Enthusiasm for opportunities is rare. Enthusiasm for opportunities is rare. Enthusiasm for obligations is otherworldly. And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Paul reemphasizes this. If you turn your Bibles, Mark there, uh, Matthew 5, if you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, In verses 5 through 7. Bondservants. He's talking about servants here, which is common during their day. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man. What is Paul talking about here? What Paul is doing is he's taking this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 and he's applying it to a very real circumstance for the people that he is writing to in Ephesus. And he's saying, this is how this is played out in this particular scenario. You have an obligation, maybe even someone who's taking advantage of that obligation, and you respond with vulnerability, with generosity, and with enthusiasm. And each of these responses is going to stand out whenever Jesus talks about you know being a light in the world we say let your light shine we sing that song with the kids what do we mean we stand out let the glory of God be seen in you and the reality is is what we see in the sermon on the mount is that many times the glory of God is seen in us most when we are in difficult circumstances when we are in scenarios that it would be a lot more comfortable, a lot easier for us to act in a natural human way. And he says, in in that very moment, when the flesh is crying out for you to act in a different way, you act in this way. And Jesus says, I guarantee you, this will stand out in a world that is obsessed with getting even. If you truly want to shine a light, if you truly want to salt the world, you show that someone else, something else is reigning in your life other than personal preservation and self-interest. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in that scripture that was read earlier in Romans 12. Don't repay evil for evil, but good. And then that wonderful verse in verse 21, don't be overcome by evil overcome evil with good. And this, he says, breaks the cycle. But what then is Jesus' overall intention? What is his greater purpose for this? When you respond righteously, when you have a righteous response to an unrighteous action, thirdly, what is the overall intention of Jesus in this? Because I think sometimes we miss A little bit deeper teaching that Jesus is showing here. We miss the power in these interactions. We miss the power in what he's saying here. Because responding to aggression and hate in these ways that he's talking about does three different things. Number one, it exposes the evil. It exposes the evil. I want you to think of these three situations again you're slapped on the cheek in disrespect. And you slowly and intentionally (coughs) turn the other. Now, if there's spectators watching, what are they seeing? What's going on here? With the turn of your head, you have suddenly turned the tables. Whereas the person who slapped you thought that they had some upper moral hand. They are suddenly exposed for who they are by everyone. And their evil is exposed to them as well. Your resignation, your vulnerability in that moment is a judgment of their pettiness and of their wickedness. You're sued for your tunic. Imagine that a man comes up to another man during Jesus' day in the midst of the market where there's hustle and bustle going on. He says, hey! I won in court. Give me your tunic right now. Give it to me. And so he takes off his tunic, and then he starts taking off his cloak as well in front of everyone, and he's naked. He says, here, have it all. And suddenly the market starts to die down, the noise starts to die down, and all the attention's focused on these two individuals. And suddenly this person's demand, their accusations, their greed, is put on display for everyone to see. Your willingness to endure the shame brings shame to them. With the soldier as well, the joyful enthusiasm suddenly becomes a condemnation of their initial coercion, exposing their abuse on a fellow image-bearer. Each of these actions that Jesus gives are particularly helpful and powerful for people who are in a position of oppression, exposing the evil in a way that also respects that person as an image-bearer of God. Number two, not only does it expose, but it actually empowers the individual that's doing it. During Jesus' day, there was very little that an oppressed person could do in response to someone who took advantage of their situation. Yet in each of these scenarios, the one who is attacked is actually empowered by the actions that Jesus offers here in this moment. The insulted are suddenly made the ones who are worthy of respect. The insulted are suddenly the ones robbing the one who slapped them of their desire to humiliate and offend them. If you're turning your other cheek, what are you saying? You can't humiliate. You're robbing them of what they're desiring to do to you. The accused are suddenly innocent as the one bent on bitterness and now unable to do what they desire. How can they take something from you when you willingly offer them everything? And the coerced are suddenly joyful bag bearers willing to go an extra mile and, and, and the powerful who were intent on reinforcing their stranglehold are unable to get the response that they wanted. The only way to overcome that type of evil is to rob it of its desire. Thus exposing it for what it is and empowering the dispossessed. So, it exposes evil, it empowers the victim, it empowers the individual, and it also transforms. That's the ultimate end of this. It transforms life. By doing this, by by operating in this way, this type of life, it truly changes the world, your world, and the world around you. It changes the most important moments of your life, the daily, substantial moments that make up your world, with the people that you interact with. It breaks the cycle of pettiness. It breaks the cycle of bitterness. And it breaks the cycle of hate and revenge that so naturally comes to us, which says, if you knock out my tooth, I'm going to knock out yours. And instead, chooses a better way of grace and of truth. And if you're sitting here thinking and questioning this final point, does it really make a difference? Does it really change anything? And if you're sitting there wondering, I don't really see the practicality of this. I don't see if this is something actually practical that I can do, that it's actually going to work the way that you say it's going to work, then we might as well question the cross itself. then we might as well question the very essence of our salvation. Then we might as well question Jesus. Because Jesus was slapped. Jesus was stripped. And Jesus was coerced and forced to go a mile. And he endured all of that shame even though he had the power to end it. He endured injustice for the sake of the world. And by this, did he not only expose the evil of sin, but he changed the world. And that wasn't the end of his story. He was resurrected. He was vindicated by God. He was shown to be who he claimed to be. And the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 12 that he despised the shame. He didn't, he, 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 he didn't consider it something worthy of his time. Yes, I'm going to be put to shame, but it's not even worthy of thinking about because something greater is coming. Something greater is happening here. Our goal, then, as Christians, isn't to get even. Our goal is to get Christ to truly live out this empowering, transforming lifestyle which responds with vulnerability, generosity, and enthusiasm even when we are insulted, accused, and coerced so that we rob evil and hate of its power. This morning, if you need the prayers of your church family, if you need help, if you need encouragement, if you need anything, we want you to use this opportunity that we're about to give to, to do that, to come forward and to ask for that. If, you, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't received forgiveness of sins, why not today? Why not receive His grace, His offer of mercy? Even though your sins cry out against God, He loves you, He's wanting to forgive you, even though you've offended Him, insulted Him, in His holiness, He wants you, He loves you. He wants you to receive that forgiveness today. Have your sins washed away through faith-filled, penitent baptism to walk in newness of life. Whatever the need is, why don't you come? Together we stand and as we sing. Our sister, Tracy Wright, has come forward asking for prayers, um, I appreciate her tender heart, uh, we, we love Tracy and, and Robert and Katie, their whole family, and uh, we uh, know that um, she loves the Lord, she confesses to having struggled with bitterness, and um, and struggling with that, and some, some forgiveness, and, and she's ready to move on from that, and to leave that burden behind, and And we want to pray for her in that, I think, again, what we talked about this morning is that this is something that it's a universal struggle that we all have, that none of us can sidestep this teaching because it, I think, affects us and hits us all in different ways. And so we want to pray for her. I'm going to ask Rich if he would start uh, uh, making his way forward so that he can pray for her on behalf of the congregation. And uh, we want to lift her up as, as she is wanting to move forward from this and help her and and also um, pray for all of us as well as we struggle with our own bitterness and, and when it comes to relationships and a variety of things. And um, I'm going to ask if uh, Rich will uh, say the prayer and we'll con- if he will close us out in prayer as well. We'll consider this our closing prayer as well. Would you please uh, be standing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, come to thee at the end of this service and we thank thee for the love and and forgiveness that we have through Jesus. We pray this time for Tracy and and for her wanting to do right and we pray that we will encourage her and she has encouraged us to be strong and to do things that are right by by coming forward this morning. Father we pray that We may all strive to live more like Jesus, be more like him, that we may show thy light into this world, which needs it so much. Father, be with us as we leave this place, and help us always to look to thee, that uh, we may reflect thy light and give thee glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.